Hi, my name is Isabel and I'm your host for the ESG Quick Takes podcast, brought to you by ESG Book. This episode I'm speaking with Sean Kidney. Sean has been a key player in a sustainable debt market and is the CEO of the Climate Bonds Initiative, or CBI, which is an international nonprofit working to mobilize global capital for climate action. Their focus is in green and climate bond markets, with the goal to help drive down the cost of capital for climate projects. CBI's primary activities include the definition of standards for climate-related investments, support for governments launching climate finance policies, and bond market data. Today, CBI has become a global standard to verify sustainable bonds worldwide, which help develop a market for sustainable investments. Hi, Sean. Great to have you. Thanks for having me on. Sean, as an intro, could you tell us why did you start the Climate Bond Initiative? Well, I had a midlife crisis. <laughs> I'm, I've spent my life as a what they nowadays call as fashionably a serial social entrepreneur, working in the area of social change, communications and marketing mainly, and uh, including working with a lot of pension funds in Australia for, for various reasons. Uh, and I and I got interested in this topic of the changing nature of capital ownership and management in society, which I think is quite a revolutionary thing. We are investing in institutions that are not vertically integrated, like insurance funds and banking fund, banks in particular, uh, but rather have a um, have a wide and diverse shareholding. But we're acquiring them to look long term to mass, match assets and liabilities long-term. Once you get reasonably large, which is what's happening with our institutional investors, things change a bit. You can't really just stock pick your way through an economic up and down. You've, you're actually now tied to the rise and fall of the economy you invest in. And that really forces you to think of things in a different kind of way if you take your responsibility seriously. You need to be looking at the long-term health of the society in which you're in, or the societies, if you're a big investor like NBIM, diversified around the world, that are that you're that you're investing in. And that's a very different mindset. It's not the same as just looking at performance of companies. And do you think that long-term mindset, are we slowly developing that, or is that something that is still very much nascent and work in progress? Well, the truth is we've seen a drastic reduction of long-termism in Western economies in the last uh, 40 years um, with a, a, a tightened obsession with short-term profits exacerbated by executive remuneration in the US, which went stratospheric, but also went share options focused, which means quick returns. You, there was a wonderful survey in 2010 of CFOs in the US which said if you had to choose between an investment decision that would make profits in six months but reduce profits in three years versus one that would make good profits in three years but reduce profits in six months, which would you choose? Guess. It was a short-term one. So th this is a, a critical problem. So I would say we're balancing out. We have created a large pool of actors that have the potential to be a very substantial counterweight to the short-termism that dogs our society. I mean, politically, it's short-termism too. Look at the US. Congress people have two-year terms. You get elected, you start fundraising. Like, this is lunatic. Uh, mind you, 
in all economies, there are challenges with the time frame for politicians. So that was the background. And then, and then I had a I had a particular crisis. My father died uh, in a small ho- hospital in New Zealand, and I went for a weekend, stayed a week. You know, when you're flying different countries, you grab a few things off the shelf to read. And uh, I ended up reading them because I was caught up in a place without much else to do for a while. One of the books I was reading was the, um, uh, once I got over the novel, was the Exeter University's Conference on Catastrophic Climate Change, chaired by Tony Blair. I probably never would have got around to reading it if it hadn't been those circumstances. It was chilling. The science was dry and hard to understand. But as you started looking at re- and rereading the conclusions, you thought, oh, my God, it was an aha moment. Yeah, I, I had this essentially a sense, Jesus, there's nothing else we should work on because this is a species extinction threat we're talking about. And I still think that is still is, it's got worse. In fact, it's very much a species extinction threat that we're dealing with here. This is not small beer. This is not trying to manage the ups and downs of a global economy year in, year out. And then a couple other things happened. I, um, One of my businesses in Australia ran into difficulties, um, which was very depressing and very difficult and threw me around and I had to think about oh, what I'm going to do next. And then I had a stroke, of all things. I found myself in hospital. And there's nothing like a serious health incident that makes you think, oh, I could die any minute. So what is it that I want to do again? In my life. <laughs> and in my case, instead of buying a, a red sports car, I chose to work in climate change the rest of my life. And uh, essentially, I embarked on what was for me a mission. Where I was, it sounded a bit absurd. I was sit- working in Sydney in Australia. My friends looked at me like I was a lunatic because I wanted to work on global issues, the governance of the planet, really. Um, but for various reasons, I decided... That's what I was going to work on. My expertise was in social change strategy. And I set about thinking about how I would apply what I know to how we change the planet. And that led to a theory of change, uh, publishing a paper in 2009, and eventually, because no one else would take it up, damn it, I have to launch yet another organization, which we launched in 2009 in Copenhagen. And... Um, and now we have a market that's grown from $2 billion outstanding to $2.2 trillion outstanding US dollars and engagement around the world, around green finance. It's a key feature of the network for the green the finance system, the regulators. I've been part of that process since they had their very first meeting years ago. And, um, and I say, in a way, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary, the growth, and from our perspective, the traction we've been able to get. But against that, it is also extraordinary how little we've actually moved. I've just come off an International Energy Agency Financial Advisory um, Committee meeting, and Fadi Birol started off saying, well, good news, we only had 1% growth of emissions last year. That's the best good news we can get. We needed to, we, according to the IPCC, it had to be 8% reduction last year globally. Things are grim. You know, things are quite grim. Um. So that's been the mission and that continues to energize me. I mean, I, I sort of, what continues to make me hopeful, and I have to say sometimes one does lose hope, that um, is that the, the, the ingredients of our soup are still there. The ingredients are, well, we kind of know what the problem is. It's a 
it's an extinction threat for us. And if we keep that road, we're essentially going to Mordor, if you've seen Lord of the Rings. If we go on this direction, we have massive global investment in infrastructure type things, which generally create wealth, not an empty apartments in Las Vegas. So this is a, a positive investment. The investment is gargantuan, $9.2 trillion a year, according to McKinsey's last year, just the mitigation side. But at least we know what to invest in because we've got the solutions. There's no R&D here. It's pretty straightforward. There are pricing issues for different things, but it's not exactly rocket science. And we do have the capital. We've got $130 trillion sitting in institutional investor hands at the moment, for example, who are worried, who are worried about their forward risks because they've got that, I mentioned at the beginning, that job of matching assets and liabilities long-term in their DNA. We did something right about 50 years ago in creating these institutional investment vehicles. And they're starting to think, oh, God, what do I do? They don't know what to do. They're, they're like rabbits in caught in the headlights most of the time. But they are if they're given an opportunity, shifting their investment screen. And what we've done in the last few years is been giving them opportunity to fix the income space. That's why there's 2.2 trillion, 2.2 trillion out there, and it's growing like a rocket still. Um, demand way over strip of supply because it's a simple idea. We're not going to get you to sort out as an individual fund the risk of or the, or the challenge of investing to save the planet because you can't. But we're going to give you investments that meet existing risk yield, but also go towards saving the planet. And then, which is the next frontier, we want to get you involved in starting to encourage governments to invest in the things that we need to invest. And that's what we're now seeing happen this year and last year. And it's um, it's become palpable. We we now have we I had this glorious moment at Glasgow which is kind of the, the culmination of what we're trying to do in terms of example, when the Australian government, which at that point was a very conservative, a Texan-style government, really, a climate change denying government, had published a net zero plan. And in the speeches the Treasurer was making in Australia time at the time and in the, the annexure to the report published by the Australian Treasury was an argument, which is quite simply... Global capital markets are moving to preference green. They're cited our greenium research, for example, showing the pricing differentials. If Australia didn't adopt the net zero plan, it risked losing access to global capital, preferential global capital markets. And its borrowing costs could go up 100 to 300 basis points. For a AAA issuer, that's going up a lot. Now, that's the Australian Treasury saying that. What can I say? I was gobsmacked, but at the same time, I said, dead right. That's exactly what we're trying to do. And you can sort of see how this thing is now unfolding. In the resilience area, it works too. We need to be getting governments to prepare for the fact that we've lost the fight against climate change. We're going to see 1.5 to 2 degrees, probably 2.5 before we can stabilize. People have to prepare now. So we're extending the guidance around green bonds to resilience activities with the carrot that if you do undertake proper system-wide resilience activities, you're going to be seen as a lower default risk. That's what the credit rating agencies are saying. And that'll lower your cost of capital. So 
Therein lies what we're trying to do, Isabel. So to summarise, the economic interest and investing in climate is actually better aligned than some might think. Let's go back to the CBI and the work that you're doing there. What is your theory of change and how does that link to debt markets, um, private debt as well as public debt? Well, in, in a way, it's very simple. The goal is to bring asset owners and the investment sector to bear as a force for change when treasurers in particular, finance ministers around the world, are typically overwhelmed by legacy interests. Uh, you know, as a friend of mine who was the Minister of Finance in New South Wales, a state in Australia, said to me many years ago, Sean, for every person I've got coming through the door arguing for clean energy, I get 30 people coming into the door arguing for fossil fuels or other things like that. And that is the nature of having to change industries. You know, incumbencies dominate, incumbents dominate. So we do want to get another voice with power, the owners of our assets at the end of the day, on behalf of all of us as beneficiaries, to express their voice. Now, they're pretty shy because they're run by accountants and and auditors and actuaries, I should say. Um, So how we do that is a challenge. But you've seen the growth of that in the last few years. You've seen things like the Climate Action 100 Plus or the Net Zero Asset Owners Alliance and various things. Focusing on corporates, now we need to move to focus on governments as the next stage. So it started. But that's the primary theory of change. Why bonds? Well, because we needed to show to investors that this was going to be an opportunity, not a cost. When I started, the dominant narrative, perhaps set by my one of my guiding heroes, Nick Stern, who was unfortunately, in this case, an economist who talked about cost, was that it would cost everyone to do climate, so we couldn't do it, because they've all got short-term as well as long-term fiduciary duties. But in fact, it's investment. If you invest properly, you get returns. Nowadays, one of our great successes and a clear objective all along has been to turn the idea of investing in climate from a net cost that would require you to sacrifice to an area that will be better for you. It'll be reduced risk and it may make better returns. Well, the first indicator of that was in secondary markets for green bonds, where every time there's a downturn, green bonds hold their value. When bonds markets freeze, you can still get bids on green bonds. If you're a fixed income value retention investor, these things are gold dust. And we've turned green bonds into gold dust. As we've effectively turned investing in climate solutions as a lower risk option. Because now we're saying you're not going to get the likelihood of negative policy action going forward, especially as everyone now believes the world is changing. You know, in the words of one of my colleagues, Sadiq Kapoor, the future has now been decided. It's only a matter of time and how long it's going to take. And Investors, since the Biden climate, so in particular, believe that. So that's a change. That was the second thing. We want to give them things they can. Remember, fixed income investors are 60 to 90% in bonds. So if you're not talking bonds, you're missing a trick. Yeah. We also did something with the bond market, which was necessary. We decoupled the idea of um, risk assessment from the underlying asset by encouraging use of proceeds bonds. 
ESG to that date had been an assessment of the overall company. Not enough to do. And, and also, we our goal was not to try and pick the pure play companies. We expressly encouraged companies that were brown to issue green for their green investments. That was a significant change. It's called the use of proceeds bond, if you like. You know, if someone's got a whole lot of coal assets and they're building solar, I wanted to borrow against the coal, which is currently low, uh, seen as, as high value, low interest rate, and invest that in the solar, which is seen as risky and therefore attracts a high rate of capital. They're arbitraging the difference. Perfect. I don't want it to increase their coal assets. There are challenges like that. But we need to use the brown to build the green. That was what we managed to establish as an idea to the green bond market that was not at all current 10 years ago and is now a fairly dominant concern. So you can sort of see some of the things we were trying to do. But if you like, the essential thing is engage investors, give them investors something to get excited about, trillions of dollars of green bonds, give them a reason to push for more in the sector, and then bring them to talk to governments about how we can meet government public policy objectives through these kinds of activities. And that's kind of where we are today, which is very exciting. So I've just come back from a week in Japan and a week in India with a lot of talk with governments about what they can do and how this stuff can get funded. People are getting excited by the opportunity now, which is exactly where we need them to be. And as more people participate in the market, I can imagine that data becomes increasingly important. Uh, how do you see the integrity of this market uh, now that the players also multifolded and the sheer debt outstanding has arisen? Look, look, we scan and track every single green bond and also social, sustainable and systemic link bond issued in the market and provide feeds to all our investor partners and index partners. So they use those as base data for their thinking and their work. And um, we have a certification scheme as well which is like, like gold standard. So it's about 15% of the market so far. Um, but what I can tell you is we do screen out bonds. And in your mind, is it the quality of the data, the sort of risk of greenwashing, scamming? Is that a key challenge? Or is it rather the definitions, the way that we actually look at green, the way that we qualify what should fall under a green bond or not? How do you see this? The primary issue, I'm going to say, is not scamming in this area. It's confusion about what qualifies. Partly because there's a lot of confused advice from governments. You know, underpinning what we've been doing has been the development of adequate science-based guidance for investors and educating investors about why they need to listen to the science. Understanding who's a voice that's going to be consistent and going to stay. Let's call it channeling the IPCC scientists. And we've done that through our taxonomy work, which is a shopping list for the future, let's just call it that, which has now become, as we've also been working with the European Commission and multiple other governments around the world on domestic regulated taxonomies as a, let's call it a step up of that idea. The science aspect is the critical aspect. There are arguments which need to be had, which had been not been had for 20 years. Is gas really part of the transition? It isn't, because unfortunately, methane leakage, once you start, we've had a false accounting story. The industry's been saying, we just have to count the plant. Well, the plant looks really good. It's about a third less than a coal plant, but actually gas is different to coal. Coal doesn't leak emissions as you move it around. Gas does. 
when you start counting in methane leakage, which we now discovered is vast thanks to satellite mapping, actually gas isn't necessarily better than coal. Sometimes it can be worse. Whoa, who knew? Well, turns out a few scientists knew, but it's now becoming mainstream thanks to IEA, IPCC reports and so on. These are things that need to be addressed, which are not being adequately addressed in national climate change plans. So most national climate change plans still have gas as a climate activity. But we're getting there. They're starting to be knocked out now. All of these things are useful guidance to investors about what you can be sure is going to be consistently green in the future, noting that at asset owner level, pension funds, we now have enormous appetite for green. We've proven to them this isn't going to be a haircut. In this market, you are going to get at least equal returns and sometimes better returns. So why not switch your whole portfolio? And in fact, that's what's going on. So the fund managers report unquenchable demand for green. And now on the back of that, there's always a weakness to make it the chance you can weaken the portfolio. But the asset owners are very keen on quality. They're the real drivers of quality because they under because the actuaries, they understand science at the end of the day. And so we've managed to get that in place. And so that's driving this conversation that's underway globally about what qualifies as green, which is now elevated into government plan. In the European situation, we've had the EU taxonomy. We're still having arguments about the edges of it. The European member states have refused to develop agricultural criteria. Too hard. Too hard. We've got to keep pressing them on that. In Japan, we've now got a Japanese government rolling out technology roadmaps for transition. It's great stuff. But there are a few things in there that aren't right yet, that need work. But at least we've now got the conversation underway, which is a hell of a lot of improvement compared to a few years ago. And, you know, the green bonds market has been a really, really critical part of creating the tools and engendering the appetite for action. And do you see governments and regulators playing a larger role here over time, uh, whereby there's like set standards around um, sort of the requirements for, for, for financing to qualify as green? We just saw the European Union enacting a green bond standards. Do you expect the world to move in that direction generally? I think we will see a move in that direction. But for me, the real issue is not the, the structure of the instruments or the nature of the reporting and transparency. It's actually the shopping list. It's the guidance of what counts as green. That's the real issue. And yes, there will be work, but the direction is inexorable. You know, in the IEA meeting that just came off, we were talking about the importance of reaffirming the fossil fuel boundaries and, and also having some geographically specific pathways. The science has advanced quite a lot. We now need, we're now on the cusp of turning that into policy. In some places, it is becoming policy. Um, green bond standards or equivalents around the world are happening, but are not the most primary, most, you know, the reporting and transparency protocols are pretty well established in the green bond principles to a large degree and also in the climate bond standard. So it's not the most important thing at this stage. Um, taxonomy is. On the taxonomy, how do we deal with changes, changes in our perception around what to qualify as green, brown or grey? How do we deal with the progression, so to say, of our knowledge on decarbonisation? In taxonomy, it has to be dynamic. Um, we need to continue to review, but just to make it safer, 
if you issue against the taxonomy this year and it changes next year, we d- there's no retrospective changes. That's a simple thing to do, right? And so you you that'll only affect forwardies. There's of course work still to be done in Europe. The European taxonomy I've been quoted in the media today is not quite fit for purpose for the green bond market because there's too many data points met in there that we can't meet. There's a lack of international equivalence. But we do have a remit from the Commission in the next platform and state of finance to work on this. So expect substantial progress in the next six months in this particular area. So it's already been incredibly influential at driving a global conversation about what qualifies as green, which we needed desperately. Uh, but we we still have to, let's call it, um, smooth out the rough spots. Uh, and that applies everywhere, really. And to close this off, then what gives you hope? What is something you look forward to? In the next two years, well, the next um, 20 months, really, we need to see every government and, frankly, every corporation to do transition plans that are commensurate with the ambition that we have to get have to achieve according to the IPCC. That's kind of a short-term media test. Everyone needs to do it because we've only got a few short years. And forget the 2050 targets. If we don't meet our 2030 targets, 2050 is irrelevant. There is no chance. We blow the whole gasket. So that's a short time frame. Plan, 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 and act quickly rather than wait. Don't wait to get the planning right. Is a lesson I say to everyone. I see the change beginning. Of course, the ambition is, as I said, everyone. I don't think we're going to get Russia doing it under the current regime, but we kind of need to. But that's there are some things that are hard. In China, I see this stirring. But of course, China now has 53% of the world's coal plants or coal plant emissions. So it's a very big beast to change. But at least we've started now. So it's a very short frame. So, you know, when you say what, well, I'm going to frame it this way. What gives me hope? What gives me hope that we see the change? We've got some models coming up. The capital wants to move. There's no doubt about it. Green bonds, the proof, if you like, proof of concept. That part's good. And the solutions are pretty clear. The tough part is that in some places the politics aren't right and the impacts of climate change, which can lead to volatility, conflict and various other things, may make it much harder for us to make the change very quickly. So it's a real it's a real race against the time. So um but you know, I, I, I see a I see a glimmer of hope. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to conclude this episode. If people want to learn more about the CBI and the work of Sean and his team, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can read more. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us. Thank you, Isabel. And this concludes the ESG Quick Takes podcast for now. Till next time. Thank you.